Welcome back to another episode of Minds of Medicine, a podcast that delivers physician stories while providing insight into the various fields of medicine. As always, I'm your host, Sonny, and today's guest is going to be Dr. Gabrielle Marzani, an Associate Professor of Psychiatry and the Assistant Dean of Admissions here at UVA School of Medicine. I am so excited for you all to hear this episode. Her journey to medicine is incredible and unlike any I've ever heard. So without further ado, run the intro. Dr. Marzani, I would love to thank you for, for being with us today. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Of course. So I kind of want to just dive right in and start with uh, learning more about your journey to medicine. So my journey to medicine begins with my father. Uh, my father was a much older father, and he actually was, uh, he grew up during the Great Depression. And as a consequence, my father felt that it was really important for all of his children to learn a trade. And so he had actually started building houses when he was 16 years old. And later, uh, when I was 13 years old, he taught me plumbing. So it's 13? important for you. Yeah, so it's wow. important for you to know that. So I built my first house with my brother with hand tools when I was 13 years old. I started college pretty early, and I found myself uh, in my second year of college feeling like I was just not ready to graduate. I was just too young. And so I left college and moved out west in order to become a plumber. And so I started plumbing on uh, Pueblos, Indian reservations in New Mexico. And I did that for about a year when I was rear-ended by an 18-wheel semi on the highway. And the people who picked me up on the highway were rescue workers. And I thought, well, that's kind of cool. Like maybe, you know, maybe that would be something that I could maybe learn how to do. I had, my car had been totaled, all my tools had been lost, I couldn't turn my neck, so my plumbing career had to kind of go on pause. Oh my God. So I came back to the East Coast and decided to go back to college. Before I went to New Mexico, I had been an anthropology major, and I was always really interested in the narrative and in people's stories. And when I went back to college, I became an EMT. And I found myself kind of, the kind of the con convergence of like the narrative and being a rescue worker made me start to think more and more about medical school. So I basically did essentially a post back um, because I had been, you know, with anthropology, I didn't have any of the prerequisites. And I basically kind of crafted my own post back because 25 years ago, there weren't that many around. And so I did the work that I needed to do, did a little research, because that was something that people said was important at that point. And then I applied to medical school. I didn't know anybody who was a doctor. There was nobody in my family that was really connected to a doctor. And my parents are both writers. And so I basically just applied to medical school, um, got some guidance along the way, and I started when I was 26 years old. This is incredible. I, you know, you mentioned to me before that I would enjoy the story, but I did not expect all of it, like it's a very windy road and before each turn you're not really sure where you're gonna go. Exactly, and so one of the reasons I love to share this story is because there are just so many paths to medicine and there are so many times when it's really important to take a pause and to kind of assess where you are 
And also, I tell people that I was 26 when I started medical school because there's no rush. Mm -hmm. Like, it's really important to know who you are and to know what makes you resilient and what you're passionate about and to just not feel like it's a race because this is a, a process of internal evolution as well as external evolution, if that makes any sense. So I, I share that story with you for that reason. And then when I, um, when I went to medical school, I went to medical school in New York at Stony Brook, and I found myself really intrigued by internal medicine as well as by psychiatry, and it turned out that a classmate of mine had discovered what's called MedPsych, which is a combined program in internal medicine and psychiatry, and there was one at the University of Virginia. So I came down here, and I ended up doing a combined residency in both. And in that process, I started to find myself falling in love with um, HIV-related illnesses, partly because as a New Yorker, I'm a New Yorker, I found myself kind of connecting to that population. Um, and so I, I found myself moving into that direction. And then when I was a, a resident, I actually saw that there was a need for psychiatric services in the HIV clinic, and I wrote a grant to get psychiatric services funded through SAMHSA, which is a, a state, a federal organization that kind of uh, helps to sort of fund uh, HIV patient populations and the care that they received. So that is sort of my, my path. So one of the things that for me is important and, and has been sort of has informed my entire career and in my life is that I really like working with people who don't always have a voice and I like being an advocate for my patients. And so, you know, I think that that is part of the reason why I'm, I care for the people I care for is because I really want to work with vulnerable and underserved populations to partly give them a voice. I actually am a public school kid, so I, I grew up in New York City. I'm one of the first Head Start kids in the nation, and I have always grown up with people who sometimes have needed to have others advocate for them. So that's just sort of part of the core part of my being, I guess, is what yeah, I would say, and, it's fair to say. And it definitely sounds like that because from the get-go, you've been talking about how you're fascinated by people's stories. Um, and in, in this case, you were able to give voices and assist in their voices to people who uh, many times, sadly, are overlooked. Right, exactly. Uh, and going back a little bit to the accident, we were just talking a, a little bit about that. There's a, there's, so I guess the other sort of message I always want to say is that there can be a lesson in every piece of adversity. You know, if you experience adversity or you experience a setback, you know, finding your way through that creates a resiliency that can do nothing but serve you in good stead. So there's, so every disappointment is an opportunity for learning and for growth and for change. And in fact, there's a concept, people talk a lot about post-traumatic stress, but there's a new concept called post-traumatic growth. And that some people really grow even more profoundly in those moments of adversity. And those are the people who we sort of want to turn to for advice and guidance and so forth, which kind of ties into the whole process of how we take care of ourselves while we're in medical school and in our profession. Yeah, and just just to kind of clarify that that, that point you were mentioning, the post-traumatic growth uh, was regarding like you uh, having like a plumbing career and then the accident that pretty much took that career away and you took it as an opportunity to really pivot. Um, right. 
And that that's that's amazing. I think I'm gonna need some like time to process that just that story. Uh, I do want to kind of go forward. You you mentioned this that in medical school you began being interested in psychiatry. What did that process look like for you after medical school? What does residency look like? And then uh, yeah. So one of the things that um, we you know we do when we're in medical school is we go through different rotations. They're they're crafted for us. So. We'll do 12 weeks of internal medicine, 12 weeks of surgery, and so the school kind of determines the rotations that we go through. And it's sort of, think of it as like a smorgasbord or a sampler. Part of what people want is they want you to have exposure to a lot of things so that you kind of help to figure out what you love to do. So, you know, some people know when they come to medical school that they love to work with their hands. Right? So that could mean that you're going to end up in interventional radiology or in dermatology doing procedures or in general surgery. You know, and some people know that they want to spend long periods of time with their patients. Like for me, I've had some of my patients for over 20 years, right? Since 1999, I've had the same patients. And then there are other people who really want to have sort of a uh, kind of a really deep connection, but more of a transient connection maybe through anesthesia or emergency medicine or something like that. So part of those rotations allow you to figure out sort of who you are and what's working for you and sort of finding that right fit. And so for me, I found myself just deeply, deeply curious about the patients who I cared for who were psychiatrically ill. And I also found myself really, really deeply curious about what's called the differential. like. What is the cause of this problem? And I was thinking about it a lot more in internal medicine. So I knew that those were two things that really, really spoke to me. I had no idea that I could combine them. And I think one of the other messages is, if there's something that you really love and you can't reconcile a way to combine two things, ask if it's possible. Because there are things that exist that you would never dream imaginable. And you know that, you know, can I be a psychiatrist and work in the intensive care unit? Turns out you probably can. You know, there are all kinds of ways that you can find your way, but you have to be willing to put yourself out there and ask the question. That's really true. I, I wanna go down, you mentioned your patients, and I was really curious to know if there's one case or interaction that has really stuck with you uh, that you could share with us. I think the first person, so when I was in medical school, I met a woman in New York who was in her 60s. Um, she was, for all intents and purposes, somebody who nobody would have thought about as, you know, sort of disadvantaged in any way. And she had come in with a cancer, a lymphoma. And it took a very, very long time for anybody to even ask whether or not it could be possible that she might have HIV. There was just, I mean, she was in, you know, an assisted living facility, she had had you know, life that for all intents and purposes, nobody ever would have kind of attributed to the sort of the early days of HIV. And she ended up having HIV. And, you know, that was really a lesson for me in terms of really, really wanting to understand somebody's story deeply and meaningfully and profoundly. Um, that was the first sort of moment for me. And then the second moment for me was a patient who was in an inpatient unit, our inpatient unit in psychiatry, who ended up having HIV as well. And I found myself just really curious about sort of the disease in terms of how it was infecting his brain. And I was just really interested in his life. He'd been like a jazz musician from Baltimore, and he just had this sort of amazing life. 
And I remember when I had to tell his story, we call it dictating, when you have to dictate the note. You know, normally a dictated note is like a page, and mine was like seven pages long. And I knew that clearly there was something about this guy that really captured my imagination, and I wanted to make sure that I caught all the aspects of it. And so I think that was another hint that I had maybe found like a deep connection to somebody in that way. That's really impressive that you're able to make these deep connections um, I'm curious from the medical student standpoint, if you more so have, like, do, do you have any tips to build those relationships in those like, very quickly? Because you enter that hospital room and you need to make that area very comfortable for the patient to open up. Yes. I think one of the things that I do is I enter with like in a really good place myself. So, you know, there's a technique that we're actually teaching people to do. It's called gel in and breathe. And as you're at the bedside, right before you enter the patient's room, you're outside the patient's room and there's this hand gel. And as you put your hand into the hand gel, it takes a while for it to dry because if it's not dry, it doesn't actually confer any antimicrobial benefits. So as you're actually washing your hands, letting them dry, take three deep breaths. And as you take those deep breaths, cleanse your mind of anything that happened before attend to your own breath, kind of really be present with your breath, and then enter the room with curiosity and intent. And that's a really good way to be able to figure out where somebody is. Like you can actually sometimes feel the energy in the room if the person's anxious or confused or upset. And so you can number one, gather some information about that if you feel like they're anxious or confused or upset and you want help, you can actually then leave and get a nurse to go in with you or a classmate to go in with you. It's actually protection, right? And if you go in and you sense sadness or something else, then you kind of go in and you try to sort of meet them where they are. But you meet them where they are with curiosity and respect and, and without any assumption. And then you sort of check in with that person. And so if you can really do that, then you can check in with them in a non-clinical way, like hey, I like your hat, or wow, it looks like somebody left you a card, who was that? Or hey, who's that person? Or wow, that photo, is that your pet? You start with a non-clinical connection, and then you start a relationship. And then you start with the clinical questions. So that is the great way to begin any patient encounter, no matter where you are in your career. And we actually sometimes train our colleagues into how to start with non-clinical connections, because that, our most fundamental, we're making a deep human connection before we can do anything else. If the person doesn't trust us, they will not reveal themselves to us in an authentic way. And that is why, for example, that woman who first got diagnosed with HIV, I don't know that anybody was able to connect to her in her most authentic way with her most authentic truth, because if they had, maybe they would have known to ask other kinds of questions or to have her reveal certain things because you know, that is, that's those things that we learn. I think the gelling is an amazing practice for, for people about to interview a patient or just build that relationship. Um, do you have any mindfulness practices that you recommend? Yes, so I really think that you can do the concept of gelling and breathe even if you're studying for an exam. So the idea is that you take a moment multiple times a day. So if you're going into a patient's room multiple times a day, you've then gelled in and breathed and you basically put yourself in this place psychologically 15, 20, 30 times in a day, right? So you leave having had all these moments of mindfulness and breathing. You can totally do the same thing if you're studying or 
walking or doing any sorts of those things. At the end of every day when I'm sort of lying in bed getting ready to go to sleep, and other people do this in other ways, I actually reflect on three questions. And those three questions are, what surprised me about today? What moved me about today? And what am I grateful for? And what that does, it actually allows me to reflect on the entire day, like from the moment I wake up, because I have to scan my day, right, to be able to remember what surprised me or what moved me or what I'm grateful for. And in some ways, I'm assessing the day again, but from this lens of a place of comfort. And, um, and that is a really wonderful way to kind of process the day in a, in a way that really gives me gratitude. And so gratitude turns out to be one of the most important things we can do to maintain our sense of well-being and our sense of resiliency. I love that. I, I completely agree with you. I, I actually apply the gratitude aspect of that. I'm going to try the other two um, questions at, at night and see. I usually do it when I start my day, Yeah. but I, I like the idea of doing it when, when yeah. you're about to go to sleep. And a lot of people actually keep a, uh, keep a journal and they write it. And the process of writing can be extremely powerful too. So I guess one of the things is you just find the thing that works for you and then you try to commit to it in a way that makes it a habit. Yeah, and I think, for, at least for me, when discussing that, like, I had to create an environment that I could easily do that. Um, so, in, in, for example, like, if I were to write things, I would want to keep that notebook with a pen right next to my bed. Exactly. Um, exactly right. That's amazing advice. It's crazy how concepts can really be adaptive to, to numerous different aspects. Yes. Uh, so, we haven't really touched on what a day in your life looks like. And I think that's something everybody's curious about because as we get deeper into it, they'll realize that you have many different hats. I have a few hats. Um, so if we start with my day as the Assistant Dean for Admissions in the School of Medicine, part of what often happens during the admissions cycle is it's a pretty structured day. Um, we have people who interview with us from all over the country, even all over the world in a non-pandemic time, they all show up for interview and our interview day starts at 10 a.m. One of the things that I do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday uh, in that cycle is I give a talk or I welcome people to, to the school and we, we overview the curriculum and our culture and all these sorts of things. And it's from basically you know, 10, 10 to 11, 15, 11, 30. So I always know what I'm gonna be doing uh, from 10, 15 to 10 to 11.30. Now during the pandemic, we do it through Zoom and we start at 11 because we want to respect the California time. So we pushed it back just a little bit so the Californians aren't like suffering too much and the West Coast in general, right? And so um, that's, that's what we do. So I always, one of the things I actually, turns out I really need is I really need structure in my life. If I don't have structure, and I have too much flexibility, it makes things kind of difficult. I also know that I will always have clinic on certain days, and so um, now during the pandemic, I start my clinic before I give my talk, and then I join my clinic immediately thereafter, so I don't have to run to another space, which I love. I can just sort of do it all through telemedicine, um, and I can also reach our patients in Southwest Virginia, you know, 12 hours away. They don't have to drive up the long drive you know, pay the gas, get childcare, leave their jobs. They have all this flexibility, and so do we now, 
and being able to decrease barriers to access. Um, and so when I'm in clinic, I'm fully and completely immersed in clinic. The other thing that I do is I work on special projects for the chief medical officer. And one of the things that I'm very involved now is in the opioid crisis for the health system. And so I'm working with uh, groups of individuals to find, you know, opioid sparing alternatives, ways of, you know, kind of caring for people while out without having to prescribe opioids, for example. And I'm actually finishing an MBA right now. I'll be done in three weeks. Uh, MBI on sustainability, and it's um, people, planet, and profits. And so my, my project that I'm finishing writing about right now is a perioperative pain uh, management program that's opioid sparing, looking uh, with the perspective of addiction medicine and anesthesia, complementary and alternative medicine like acupuncture, music therapy, and the two places that do this really well that I'm aware of are Duke and Johns Hopkins. So they have been generous and taught us lessons, and so we've been working with that. UVA also has a great program called ERAS, which stands for Enhanced Recovery After Surgery, and it is a, and it is very much focused on patient education and getting people psychologically prepared for surgery and kind of what to expect. And we do a lot of work there where we talk about functional uh, aspects of pain rather than a pain scale. So, for example, if somebody is in a lot of pain and we ask them to give us a rank of, you know, zero to 10, they're going to give us a number. But that doesn't mean that we know if they can actually get out of bed or go for a walk. And so our goal is to get people to be able to function, not to be pain free, because sometimes pain gives us valuable information. If you have zero pain, then you actually won't know if you have a site infection or something is brewing postoperatively. Your body needs to give you a little bit of information. That isn't to say that you should be miserable, but you should have a little information to work with, and then you kind of go from there. So the whole idea that we're completely obliterating pain to a scale of zero means that you're going to be completely asleep or completely obtunded, and that's not the goal. That's the goal, not functional. Right, it's not functional. So that's part of what we want to educate patients on is that we need them to be able to be psychologically prepared to, you know, ask for their medicines, but also to be able to breathe and to listen to music and to self-soothe and then to kind of work with physical therapy and occupational therapy to move them around. Um, and the goal is to function, not, not absolute zero. Well, first of all, congra early congratulations <laughs> on the MBA. Uh, it sounds like you have a lot on your plate. How, how do you balance everything? I think one of the things that you will learn in your internship, uh, many of you are learning it already in medical school, is to be very good at uh, being organized and being very task-driven. So, you know, I, I try to block out time to do things, um, and I try not to end up in the weeds too much. And so, for example, if I'm getting lots and lots of emails during the day, I will kind of look at them, scan them, and prioritize them. Um, but I, I learned from somebody named Randy Canterbury, who is really my mentor in many ways, who I first person I met when I interviewed here. And, uh, he was the chairman of my department, and now he, he's a senior associate dean for education, is that he always answers every single email he gets with respect and, and, you know, a thoroughness. And so I try to make sure that 
I always respond to every single thing that comes my way. And, you know, that's actually a way of sort of practicing what you preach with respect. I might miss one occasionally if somebody reaches out to me, but I, try, I try to really make sure to, to, to be honorable in that way. Wow. Uh, I do want to go back to a little bit about your role as assistant dean of admissions. Uh, this year has been unlike any other. Right. Um, what hurdles has have you guys uh, encountered and how have you overcome right. them? So I would say that one of the things we want to make sure of is we want to recognize first that a lot of people have a lot of hurdles. Um, this is where creativity comes into play as an applicant. You know, yes, it's true, you might have trouble finding somebody to shadow with and that sort of thing, but there's virtual scribing, there's ways of reaching out to your community and being generous of spirit, volunteering by helping somebody learn how to, you know, read or tutoring them in some way. You know, there's all kinds of ways to be creative and giving back to the community or helping the community, making masks. Different people have done all kinds of different things. So um, we recognize that there have been barriers for people in terms of doing what they feel they need to do in order to have a really strong application. A lot of people take a year off, which is never a bad idea. Um, it helps you kind of regroup and kind of see what you need to sort of enhance and sort of that sort of thing. And for us, what our struggle has been is to make sure that people actually know us because what it makes us kind of special is our culture of a warm and welcoming atmosphere that our students are happy, that they work really hard but they're not freaking out, that they're, they have a really strong connection to their classmates, that they understand the value of diversity of life experiences and perspectives and all that sort of stuff, and that the faculty are there and really supporting them and so forth. So how do you capture that? That's a lot harder to do. So, you know, part of the way you capture it is you actually are excited to see people when they come right for the interview day. And we connect people to medical students and we figure out a way to give them a virtual experience here. Um, and so those are the things that we've had to do. And so we'll find out if it was successful, right? Because yeah. we're still in the, in the throes of admissions. So we'll know in August if our, our work um, panned out. But remember, we know and you should know that we're all in this together. Mm -hmm. Like nobody has been spared. And so one of the things that we all need to do is just appreciate that and understand that everyone knows what we're going through. And so you're not alone, and this is not a calamity, and it's going to be okay. I mean, yes, it's, it's been very sad in terms of what's happened to a lot of people, and there's nobody who hasn't been touched in some way by this pandemic. But in terms of your path to medicine, like, it's gonna be okay. And you just have to really dig down and find your authentic truth and you know, use that time to learn something that you wanted to learn, like a language or a cooking skill or something like that, to, to take it as a moment to pause and, and, and flex that resiliency muscle. And that's a really important thing. Yeah, and I completely agree. I think, I, will, I want to personally attest to the fact of like the homey feeling uh, on interview day. I think you walked in, you knew all of our names, you talked to us, uh, you knew a lot about us uh, just from your memory, and you were actually the first, I guess, dean of admissions that I, I met in the entire interview trail that did that, that at least knew my name. Mm -hmm. um, so that was definitely something super unique here. The time with the med students was 
absolutely amazing. And the food was, was also really good. Yes. Um, I really hope for the students' sake that or we were able to like recreate that for the virtual because uh, it really is a great place here. Thank you. Yeah, we take we work really hard. And I think the other thing is that this office has a lot of people who work really hard to make it a good experience. And I would say I take a lot of pride, and we take a lot of pride in the fact that every person who works here has a voice to be able to give their input. And in the same way that we value that diversity in the medical school class, we value that diversity in the Office of Admissions. And so every person here is deeply involved in that process. And so it's not, you know, I think that's really important also in that every aspect that we do, our leadership skills are being servant leaders or leaders in, in letting others teach us and that we don't always have to have the answers. And being open to other people's opinions is very, very important in everything we do in our careers. I also want to go back a little bit about what you said about working on projects for the CMO. Uh, how did that come about? Is that something you reached out for? or? Well, no, actually what happened is, and I, I won't get into too much detail, but suffice to say I had to, to stop taking call. And when I was um, an intern, I worked in the medical intensive care unit, as all medical intern medicine residents do. And the first chief medical officer at the University of Virginia is a man named Jonathan Truitt, who is now uh, chief strategic officer somewhere else, who is another person that I I'm just unbelievably grateful to for his sponsorship. I'll make a difference between mentorship and sponsorship. Mentorship are people who mentor you. Sponsors are people who are in a position of power and bring you along. Mm. And okay. so Jonathan Truitt sponsored me, as did Randy Canterbury. And um, Jonathan saw a, a, a place for me in the CMO office. And so he literally just stopped me in the hallway one day and said, we need a physician who will be somebody that people feel comfortable approaching and who people will sort of speak their truth to. And we see you as that person. Would you be willing to work in my office? And I said, in a heartbeat, because this was somebody who really was extraordinary and involved in, as a medical ICU attending, bringing along the opinions of everybody. So everyone had a voice when they were taking care of patients, nurses, respiratory therapists, the front desk, you know, nutrition services, housekeeping, engineering, everybody felt that they could speak their truth in rounds. So the patient got extraordinary care, right? And I modeled that behavior when I ran rounds in the, in the inpatient unit in psychiatry. So I knew that this is somebody who really would value my voice and also would value the, the sort of what other people had to say and so to me, that was just a dream job. And so it became a piece of what I did as I was uh, doing all the other things. And so I've been in that role for about 10 years, I would say. Um, and it's, and there have been CMOs that have come since then, but um, who have all been great to work with. But he really was the first person to sort of see something in me that I didn't see in myself. And I guess that's the other lesson allow others to see you fully because you won't recognize that they will see something in you that is valuable uh, and they'll see a role for you that you don't see for yourself that you don't even know exists and so that has been part of my career is having people see things that I can do well that I'm unaware of and the things sometimes that I think I do well maybe I'm not so good at 
So, you know, that's always, you know, sometimes that's a lesson too, right? Like, I'm horrible at math. <laughs> I will agree with that one. I, I cannot do, I'm, we've been uh, tutoring these high school students and sometimes when they ask math questions, I'm like on Google, Googling the exact right. math question. Like, I should know algebra too and calculus. Like, I should know all this, but yeah. oof, haven't yeah. touched it. No, not, <laughs> not, not good, not good. Oh, man. So I do want to highlight something that I, I love about your story, and it's that you've really been able to follow your passion and your interest and make the field work for you. And I know you touched on this a little, um, but outside, but not just the field, but also your position, uh, your passion about education, your passion about perioperative pain management, um, and then also uh, just giving yourself to the projects you're in. Um, and I think that's not really highlighted as much in medicine because I think when people look at a field, they just see themselves as practicing clinicians in that yes. field. I think that's one of the things that's lovely about academic medicine is that it's you can you can pivot in any any arena, but it's just a little bit easier sometimes because what's nice about academic medicine is if you have let's say a hundred percent time, somebody might say, "Hey, would you be willing to spend five percent doing this or ten percent doing this?" And so you get to tip your, put your toe in the water. You get to test things a little bit to see if it's a good fit. Whereas sometimes in other arenas, it's all or nothing. Like you have to take a whole new job. Well, you know, maybe that's going to work. Maybe that's not going to work, right? You're taking a little bit of a risk. But in, in academic medicine and in some other places, you get to try things on. You get to see if they're a good fit. And if it isn't, then you move on. So, um, you know, I think... For example, I'm teaching in a class called the Healer's Art, which is a resiliency class um, for first-year medical students. And it's only a teeny bit of my time, but it's really meaningful, and it's taught me some really important life lessons, which I can then apply to other things. I think the other thing with academic medicine is, you know, and, and in all aspects of life, you just never know what's going to be the thing that grabs you. And so, you know, sometimes it takes a decade or two to figure those things out. So where I am now, I would have never imagined being. The reason I'm in an MBA program is that somebody here saw me as somebody who could potentially be in a leadership role. And so they sent me to an institution to, to learn about leadership and negotiation. So you know that got me really excited about business school. And that is where it took me next. But, you know, again, you just never know where the, where the threads are going to lead you. And I think those opportunities are greater sometimes in academic medicine um, because of the structure of it. Wow. I, that's so valuable. I, I would love to know, uh, where do you see yourself in the next 10 years um, career-wise? I think I'm going to still be here, but I think I'm going to be doing things with a, in a slightly different way. So, for example, um, I'm a... I hope, we'll see how this goes, but my, I actually prescribe buprenorphine for my HIV patients. I saw a need uh, in my patient population for something, and so I became a Suboxone prescriber in order to help my patients, right? I had already been doing some work before that in addictions, and so I've decided to get boarded in addiction medicine. And so I'm going to be, my hope is to be boarded in addiction medicine. We'll see if this happens, but this is my hope. And then I will be able to be part of that perioperative pain management program that I talked to you about and kind of be able to craft it 
and move it in a direction that really kind of becomes self-sustaining. I think I'm going to be creating programs in ways that are really meaningful for patients and really meaningful for providers. Um, and always with the concept of being extremely collaborative. And so I would love to create those sort of model programs that could be replicated in other places. So I think that's gonna be part of what I do. I see myself staying at admissions because it's just a, a wonderful way to be connected to people uh, on many different levels. And I don't see myself ever leaving my patient population because in some ways, you know, we all grew up together at this point. Um, my earliest training has been with this group of people, and so you know I feel just a really deep commitment. So I think it's going to be sort of what I'm doing, maybe on steroids. That's <laughs> what I would say. Well, it sounds like it sounds like you will be able to handle it with your organization. <laughs> so I'd love to hear that. Uh, it's easy to tell that you're very passionate about the admissions and your patients. So it, it just makes me really happy to know that you're going to stick with stick with those, um, especially being that applicant that was in that interview room. Uh, you definitely made that experience really comfortable, and I know that's uh, related by everybody that I've talked to. Um, so thank you for that. Thank you. So I guess we're getting to the conclusion of the podcast. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention? Yeah, I would say just again, the last, my parting words are, be your authentic self. Don't compare yourself to anybody else Everybody else is doing their own thing. And even if it seems like they're doing it in a better way than you are, stay true to yourself, be as authentic with yourself, do things with passion, be committed, be curious, take risks. Um, and those are all things that are gonna serve you in really good stead. I love that. Thank you so much, Dr. Marzani. Thank you so much. It was great being with you this morning. Now I told you that story was gonna be incredible. I hope you took away some of those mindfulness practices and also the concept of post-traumatic growth. Now, if you all are enjoying these episodes, a huge way to let us know is jumping on Apple Podcasts and leaving us a review, or if you're on Spotify, hitting that subscribe and follow button. Until next time.